1 Timothy chapter 4, and tonight we'll finish the chapter, verses 11 through 16. One quick note about actually verse 10, uh, just as an addendum to last time's study. Let me, let me read that verse again. For it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. A friend came and talked to me about that verse afterwards and said, doesn't that verse pretty much do away with the idea of limited atonement, the idea that Jesus Christ just died for a certain group of people? Uh, and I think that it does. It, it does seem to, to um, theologically, it does seem to describe two groups, does it not? It seems to, to describe a group of all men and then particularly of a, of a subset of that group. What that means is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross renders all men savable. It makes all men savable, but, but it saves only those who trust him to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So that's, uh, we were uh, kind of pressed for time at the end last time, but that's, uh, that is exactly what that's doing. Now read verses 11 through 16 along with me. I'd like to cover them in terms of the reading all at once, and then we'll go back and comment on these verses. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, beginning in verse 11, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourselves and for those who hear you. If you were reading along carefully there with me, you might have noticed a couple interesting issues in this closing section of chapter 4, and hopefully we'll answer your questions that you might have on those tonight. In verse 11, Paul charged Timothy to insist regularly on the things that he had just been saying and to teach them to the Ephesians. The verbs are in the present tense here, indicating uh, or suggesting continuing action. The, the verb that's, that's translated prescribe means to announce what must be done. It's to issue a command. And interestingly, Paul is commanding Timothy, this is an imperative mood, he's commanding Timothy to issue a command. It's, it's a, he wants, this is not lightweight stuff. He is to prescribe these things. He is to command them. Now the word prescribe may actually be too soft for the, con, for the context here. Uh, if a doctor is to prescribe you some medication... Well, you may think, well, you can do it or you cannot. A doctor may prescribe that you walk four miles a day, three days a week, and you may decide to do that or you may not to decide to do it. We don't usually say the doctor commanded you, do we? Not in our culture today. That, that wouldn't, be, um, it wouldn't be thought appropriate. But it is appropriate for an apostle to command his man in Ephesus to command the people in Ephesus to follow the teaching that he had prescribed here. Now, the, these things, he says, prescribe and teach. Not just prescribe, and not, don't just command, but continue to teach these things. Seldom do people learn theological concepts in one setting. 
And so, so there is a certain amount of repeating of theological concepts in good theological teaching. I think repetition is good. If it's spaced and varied repetition, I think it's absolutely important. Now, very few of us learn, uh, learn complicated or, or detailed theological concepts just the first time through. We learn a little bit of it, then we come back again and learn a, bit, a little bit of it more, a little more of it, prescribe and teach these things. Now, the, the question is, what are the, these things? Because we could wonder, is Paul speaking about verses 6 through 10? And that's a possibility, but when we go back to verse 6, we see, in pointing out these things to the brethren, it would seem as though that, these things, takes you back even further. And in fact, if we were to continue to go back as far as I believe we need to go, the these things that Paul is speaking about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, really go all the way back to the very beginning of this epistle, uh, rather than just the previous paragraph. Paul is giving instruction to believers on how they ought to conduct themselves within the household of God, which is the local church, so that these things most likely covers the entirety of his instruction on how we ought to behave in the context of the local church, including the things we learned in chapter 3 about qualifications for overseers and elders, including the material that we learned in chapter 2 about the instruction that we gave to women. And, and Timothy, if he's like most of us, would like to have taught that once. And then we can move on to the next subject. But, but he's to consistently do this. There's always new converts coming into a church as well. One of the challenges in pastoral ministry, and uh, I'm not certainly not whining about this, I love pastoral ministry, but one of the challenges of pastoral ministry is, is preaching to somewhat of a different audience every week. Because you have, you have people come in that are brand new. And then you have people come in, that, that, that people attending a church service that may have been believers 40, 50, 60 years worth, maybe sometimes even more. And, it's, and it is incumbent upon the one that's preaching the word to make sure that you don't leave anybody behind. And so you, you prepare a sermon that can be, that can be um, fulfilling for, for the mature believer in Jesus Christ as well as someone who doesn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. And so there are always people coming into the congregation. He was to continue to command. He was to continue to teach these things, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Now, these were to be commands, and there was to be continuous teaching. These are not suggestions. So many times in the church today, particularly with chapter 3, we consider these suggestions and not commands. Well, where's the grace there? <laughs> no, these are commands. Grace has nothing to do with it. Obedience comes into play here. Especially in First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is in the church context. But to remain quiet. Oh, that doesn't fit our culture. So we almost look at that as a suggestion. Oh, that's just because uh, Paul didn't care for women. Oh, really? Where'd you get that from? You know, th- we would do we will do the incredible exegetical gymnastics to keep away from obeying the these things. But we can't do that. There's no take it or leave it here. There's no postmodern attitude. Well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. There's no, I know that that's what the Bible says, but... You know, anything that follows a but like that is dangerous. Anything that follows that kind of conjunction is very dangerous thinking. I know the Bible says that, but... 
but I'm going to do something different, you'd be a whole lot better off not, not putting that first part in. Just leave the, I know the Bible says that out. If you're going to put a but after that, don't be foolish. There's to be none of that kind of thing. Command and instruct. Prescribe and teach. Consistently and regularly. Without fear, without timidity. This is God's word that Timothy is preaching. He shouldn't be afraid of preaching the truth. Now, I want you to take careful note that Timothy was to prescribe and teach these things. In other words, the Word. Not His Word. Not His Word. The Word. The Word of God. Not some positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale wannabe, kind of feel-good nonsense. That wasn't what he was commanded to command and teach. Timothy's responsibility was to prescribe and teach the Word of God. I would not want to be a pastor who is charged by the Word of God to prescribe and to teach the Word of God, who then apologizes for the Word of God and refuses to teach the full counsel of God because it might be taken as negative. I can't say that. I know that's in the Word of God, but... Here we go. But I'm not going to teach that because people might be offended if I was to teach that, for example, homosexuality is a sin. We don't want to offend anybody. If I was to teach that, that shacking up is a sin, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to mention any sin at all, in fact. Woe to the man who does that. And woe to those who support that kind of ministry. The teaching of the Word of God has fallen on hard times, as far as our culture is concerned. In a new movement called the Emerging Church Movement, prescribing and teaching anything with authority is openly ridiculed as archaic and unenlightened. Their thinking is, since there are no absolutes, how can anyone have the gall to prescribe anything? And this is where our Christian culture has come as well. Not just the wider culture, but the Christian culture has come to the point where we've accepted postmodernism. The idea, amongst many other things, that there are no absolutes. There are no absolute truths. Except for, as you might remember Norman Geisler's retort to that, you mean except for that. Because I just made an absolute statement, did I not? When I, when I say there are no absolute truths, I'm just assuming that you're going to take that as an absolute truth. So it's self-refuting, but we need not uh, confuse ourselves with, with logical references, I guess. But the church is following in lockstep to the wider culture. Our wider culture has become postmodern in its thinking. And it's, it is said by those who study this at a higher level that postmodernism came to Europe around 1900, into the universities. Postmodernism hit the United States in the university system closer to about 1960. And it's also postulated that if you grew up in the United States, if you were born after 1960, then you have had a, a lifetime of bombardment of postmodern thinking. From everything from commercials to, to sitcoms to football games. 
It, it has permeated our entire culture. The idea that there are no absolutes. Who are you to prescribe anything to me? Who are you to say something is right and something else is wrong? That's postmodernism, and it is inconsistent with the scriptures. God is not postmodern. When he speaks, he intends to be understood. His words have meaning. He intends for his creatures to submit to him, not to pick and choose what suits us at any particular moment. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. And then in verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example of those, or to those, perhaps, who believe. This Greek word translated youthfulness, described in the day of its writing, people up to 40 years of age. Okay, that's encouraging, isn't it? You're, you're a youth up until 40. I understand that 50 is the new 30. I'm happy about that too, but I, I want, you know, maybe 40 is the new 20, and then maybe 20 is the new zero. I don't know. Does that mean you get an extra 20 years in there somewhere? But Timothy was considered to be youthful even up to 40. So that's why some New Testament authorities would, would hold that Timothy was around that age. There's no way of knowing for certain. But Timothy was very probably around, could we say, maybe 35 to 45. But still considered a fairly young man in the ministry. It's difficult. Even today, it's, uh, I went to seminary with guys that were, they were in their young 20s. They'd come right out of university and gone into seminary. It's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to have people who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s take you seriously. You know, if you're in your early, mid, mid to early 20s when you get out of seminary. I don't think Timothy was that young. Perhaps a little bit older. But uh, it could be that people weren't taking him as seriously as they should have taken him uh, in Ephesus. Now, I want you to see, actually, from verse 12 all the way down to verse 16, Paul is going to stress to Timothy that his behavior in public and in private is important. Paul didn't hold to this idea, do as I say and not as I do. He didn't hold to that. And I'm not a, a seminary professor. I teach at a, a Bible college uh, from time to time. But if I, if I did teach at a seminary, one of the things that I would stress to the students is that your conduct matters. And if that's a problem for you, then quit right now. If, you, if you're going to have the attitude, do as I say, but not as I do, then go ahead and stop right now. Because the way I look at it, the, the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, are, are pastoral marching orders. And this is, this is pretty significant. Now, I know it's difficult. I know you live in a fishbowl if you're in pastoral ministries. I know your family lives in a fishbowl as well. I know everybody's watching everything that you do. I know Satan, I know, I, I can guarantee you for sure, Satan comes up and he'll bring people to you right before a message to complain about something, you know, just, just to harp on something. And, and the, the challenge is not, not to react. Not to snap because people are watching. They want to see if you're going to practice that love that you preach. Now let me tell you an insider, a pastoral ministry secret. No pastor does it all the time. It's, it's an impossibility. No pastor lives a sinless life. But there is an example to be set. There is a model that should be followed. 
And if you're preaching something that you're not convicted of yourself, then people are going to see through that like they'd see through a cheap suit. And they, they may follow for a time, but not in the way that they should. Tupos, which is the word that he uses here, when it shows you, to show yourself as an example, tupos is a model of behavior or an example to be imitated. And instead of people looking down upon him because he was young, Timothy was to so consistently prescribe and teach, to command and instruct. He was so consistently to teach the word to his congregation, or actually it's probably more than one house church in Ephesus, it's, it's impossible to say, but the house churches then were relatively small. But, but Timothy had authority, delegated authority from Paul over a wider group than just a pastor would have had. But, but in his interaction with people, it should be so like what he taught that people wouldn't see his youthfulness anymore. They would see a man who's convicted of that which he speaks, and not only speaks it, but lives it. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but... Now here's a, a but that we can look at what follows. But rather, and then he gives several different things, in the way you talk. Now this could also include in the way that you present the word, because Paul has said in another place that we're to speak the truth in love. And I'll I'll tell you what, sometimes it's tempting to speak the truth in anger, especially if you're in front of a hostile audience. Now, generally speaking, churches aren't hostile audiences. I know sometimes seminaries are. You know, that can be a hostile audience. I've I've sat in seminary classes where they were. But, but, you know, in in pastor's conference overseas, in in different settings, I look at a man like Ravi Zacharias. Almost every audience he goes to is hostile. Ravi Zacharias went in and taught and either the Utah, Utah State, or Brigham Young, I can't remember which, and presented Jesus Christ to, a, to an audience full of 5,000 Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints students. Now that's a hostile audience. But I listened to that tape, and you know he did it in love. I, I, I heard that he was criticized by being a little wishy-washy. Not to my, not, not to my uh, evaluation, he wasn't. He did a great job. He went in there. He taught the truth in love. And see, he didn't just speak the truth, but he was living the truth out as he was speaking it. And you know what? Based upon the question and answer session, almost everybody, almost everybody that came to the podium to ask him a question started that question off by saying, Sir, we can tell that you are a man of love. Sir, we can tell that you believe what it is you just said, and you practice it, and we respect that. There's a reason for it. So in the way that Timothy spoke, in the way that he conducted himself... In the way that he loved each uh, one another, in the way that he exhibited faith, or perhaps handled the word of God, that could be taken either way, and also purity. Now, this word for purity is is a word that did that did mean first and foremost sexual purity. He was to handle himself in an, in an appropriate way. The, the 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 women in the Ephesian congregation were to be treated with as sisters. In all purity. Do you hear that? As sisters in all purity. And that's the way that I hope we interact with one another as well. You know, we're considered to be a church that's huggy. We're considered to be a church that, that loves. And I don't apologize for that for that at all. I think that's one of the best things about our church. And just so we, we understand, when you're hugging somebody, it's not your wife, she is your sister. 
in all purity. Everything works fine. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that, that, a, that a Christian man and a Christian woman can actually love each other and it not getting to something that's impure? It's a wonderful thing. His words, as well as his actions, his love for people, his trust in God, and his moral purity should provide an example. Something that's worthy of following. An example or a model of behavior to be imitated. You know, Paul in another place says, imitate me. Imitate. That's pretty bold, isn't it? But he stood, he stood up there and said, imitate me. Because in previous to that, he was saying, because I am imitating God. So ultimately, what it is you're imitating in there is their Christ-like behavior. Now, now set aside the personality thing. Sometimes people get enamored with a, a certain aspect of a pastor's personality and want to imitate that. Don't imitate certain quirks in their personality. Imitate what you see in them that is of God. What you see in them that is Christ-like. That's what's to be imitated. One New Testament authority wrote, It is the first duty of a minister to display in his own life that which, he, that which he wishes his people to be. It is the first duty of a minister to display in his own life that which he wishes his people to be. And, and it's tough. But that's the command. And people, I think people going into pastoral ministries need to know that right up front. That you are to be an example to the flock. In fact, if you hold your place here for just a moment, I want you to turn over to my friend Peter. My friend Peter in this 5th chapter, as he is, uh, uh, 1 Peter, 5th chapter, as he lets us know what's going to happen with pastors at the judgment seat of Christ. Just quickly, Peter says, in, as he concludes this, this epistle, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, and remember, we even studied here, the term elder uh, is, also, is used interchangeably with the term bishop in the New Testament, and also in some places pastor. And this is one of those places. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. This is the word for pastor. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. And this is what I want you to see. But proving yourselves to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the unfading crown of glory comes not for how much theology you know. Because, you know what, the best as I can tell, it, was ex it, is, it is expected of those who stand in a pulpit and teach the word to know theology. That's a given. You should know your subject. But the, 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 the unfading crown of glory which the chief shepherd will reward those under-shepherds with, is going to be primarily, primarily, for proving themselves to be an example to the flock. Back to 1 Timothy. In verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Timothy should give attention to his public ministry then, as well as his private life. Three duties are critical. First, he should... Make sure that church leaders read the scriptures and the meanings of the church. This practice, which is, was a carryover from synagogue worship, was central in corporate worship of God's people. Second, exhortation should continue to accompany the reading of the word. 
Exhortation describes the explanation and the application of the text. There are some that that see the idea of expository preaching here. I, I'm one of those. I see I see more than just a simple reading of the word. There there appears to be more than that. In other words, the red is the word is is read. The word is explained, and then there's an exhortation to help the word be applied in the individual's life. It sounds a whole lot like today's modern expository sermon. And teaching, of course, is necessary. So there appears to be systematic instruction in the faith. There should be a recognition of the text, an explanation of the text, and instruction in personal application of the text. Now, do you see why it's so important for those who proclaim the word to live the word? Let me ask you this. Would you hire someone to be your personal fitness trainer that was themselves 200 pounds overweight. You're laughing. Why would you laugh? It almost seems absurd, doesn't it? Uh, Perhaps you would, but it's not likely that you would do that because you would wonder why, if the advice that that person had was so good, why would they themselves be 200 pounds overweight? Maybe the advice is good, but they themselves aren't convicted enough of the advice that they're giving to follow it themselves. That makes sense? So there, there aren't very many 450-pound fitness trainers. There may be some. And, and you know what? They may be brilliant. There aren't very many dentists that don't have any front teeth. You know, you would wonder. You know, if, if you don't you have any friends that can work on that for you? You know, if you're really convicted about the, the health of the teeth and the way the jaw, I'm, I just talked to some dentist, you know, when you're miss, missing a tooth, it you know affects the whole jaw. If you're really convicted of dental science, maybe you would apply some of it to yourself, wouldn't you? I would hope so. What would you think about a stockbroker that sold, that sold, or rather, that told you to buy a stock, and at the same time, they were selling that stock? It happens all the time. But by the way, it's fraudulent, really, I think, but it happens all the time. What would you think about that guy? He's telling you to buy, but he's selling. You think, wait a minute, does he really have, is he really sold? I mean, not, not to use the word too many times, but, but is he really convinced that this is a good stock? If he's selling while he's telling me to buy, probably not. So why would you listen to a pastor tell you what to do when they're not doing it? When they have no intention of doing it? Was well, it good for you and not for them? What's going on? And so, so if, if people are going to, to follow, somebody's got to be leading. And not just in what they say. How about these commanders of ancient times? And, and sometimes Roman generals were bad about this. Julius Caesar wasn't so much. But some Roman generals were bad. They would be, they would be in the back. they say, go get them. <laughs> just go get them. And there would be people that did. I guess if you're a good enough leader, you, you might could get away with that. But uh, some people like, like Patton and MacArthur got to where they were by leading from the front. Now, they didn't, they didn't do that as they, they got further along in their careers, but there's one story about World War I where George Patton and, and Douglas MacArthur were on the same battlefield. I think they were both majors at the time, colonels or majors. And they, looked, they were the only two people that were standing on the battlefield. Of course, they weren't George Patton and Douglas MacArthur at the time. They were unknowns at the time. But they were both standing there. 
they looked over at the other one. Neither one of them wanted to be the first one to duck. So they both sat there. They're shooting Germans like that. And then they, they end up becoming fantastic leaders. It's a wonder the Lord let them live at all with all the bullets that were flying. So Timothy has a responsibility to live privately and publicly, consistently, not perfectly. I mean, I, I could set a standard tonight whereby you'd say, okay, that's it, you know. You're out of here or I'm out of here because nobody does it perfectly. I'm not giving excuses. That's my problem before the Lord, but it should be done consistently to where people can say, yeah, you know, he says that and I think he believes it. I really think he believes that. You see? Verse 14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the, and the word probably should be translated, by the elders. Timothy had received ordination for service to God by the laying on of hands of the Apostle Paul and by apparently some of the elders in that location. Now, when that happened to Timothy, this is not normative. I don't believe Paul is in any way saying this is normative. But when that happened to Timothy, there was a prophet present that that prophetically predicted what Timothy's ministry would be like. Now, it is not normative for today. But Paul calls upon Timothy to remember that. You remember back when you were first ordained? Remember what they said about you. Don't forget that. This group of elders laid hands upon him, and it was a very special, very important time. I remember my ordination very well. Remember, like, you know, proverbially, just like it was yesterday. Um, I remember the exam part. That's the part I was really pumped up for and, and just had a ball, really. It was, it was great. We could have gone on a few more hours. It was, it was fun, you know, and, and I was uh, treated, treated very well. There, there were a few of the examiners that, that uh, we had some interesting uh, bantering back and forth with, uh, but, but still even that was fun. And that was on a Saturday. And then on Sunday morning, I actually preached at, at our church, Pine Valley. This was when we still met in the school, I believe. This was a ways, ways back. And then on Sunday night, I came. And, and i got to tell you, be honest with you, when I got there on Sunday night, I was kind of tired from the whole ordeal. Saturday, from a little party we had had Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoon after the church service, I, I the, the, the laying on of hands thing and the charge that was given to us, in a way, I was looking at it as almost anticlimactic, and boy, was I wrong. Now, I, I hope you know me well enough by now to know I'm, I'm really no mystic. I'm a, I'm a pretty practical kind of guy. I wasn't expecting much, but when we were called called up there, too, there was, um, I think, f- was there five of us? A couple of you guys were there. There was there was five of us. Moses Owebiku, by the way, was was the one that sat next to me the whole time. Moses is very verbose. Every time he would answer a question on Saturday, he would go on and on and on with his answers. And everybody was laughing and hooping and hollering. It would be something like, do you believe in eternal security? And then would, he would say this 20-minute answer, and then it would get to me, and, and uh, I'd just say, yes, I do. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it, it was difficult to act to follow. It was interesting when we were walking along the road in, in uh, Zimbabwe. Moses and I turned to each other almost simultaneously and said, uh, I forgot who brought, who brought the subject up, but we both uh, agreed would you have ever thought those years ago when we were sitting next to each other being ordained that we would be walking next to each other doing ministry in Africa as a team? It was just a, a phenomenal deal. And we, we actually stopped right there on the road and gave each other a big hug. Of course, it's down here for me. And him. He, he was looking up at me like this, but, but it was fantastic. But anyway, when we, when we were all called up 
And then the, the deacon board and the, the, the pastors that were there uh, came and laid hands on us. And again, I'm no mystic, but it was, it was a, a feeling went over me that was more than just pure emotion. don't know what it was. It almost felt like, uh, almost like a static electricity. It was, it was different. And I'll tell you what, when, when it was finished, I went up there with, with pretty much an exhausted soul already from the previous day's events, from the previous morning's events where I'd already preached at our own church. I was having to kind of wipe, wipe the, mist, the moisture from my cheeks. Thinking, what in the world has just happened here? But it was a very special moment. Some of you have been ordained too. You probably felt something very similar. When, when a group of people lays their hands on you and says, we're, we're giving you our seal of approval, so to speak. You know, we've examined you. We've looked at your, your theology. We've looked at your character. We're with you, representing an entire local body. That's a very special moment. And Paul wanted Timothy to think back to that. You know, when, when things got difficult for Timothy, perhaps, as they always will in pastoral ministry, as they always will, Timothy, think back. Think back to that original day where you were ordained for this ministry. And it will help you. In verse 15, the, the, the language is going to get stronger. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Again, there's a private part of this, and then there's a very public part of it as well. As Timothy, as Timothy concentrated on these things, also it could be understood as attended to or cared for or practiced these responsibilities, his personal progress in maturity would become evident to his fellow believers in Ephesus. Uh, I love what Dr. Ironside said. He said, No one who really wants to count for God can afford to play at Christianity. He must make it the one great business of his life. No one who really wants to count for God can play at Christianity. He must make it the one great business of his life. Take pains. Become so focused upon the task that nothing can knock you off of it. And as you personally mature, then people will observe that and they'll want to follow along. They'll want what you have. Now this is directed toward pastors. I believe, but it has application that overflows to you as well. As an individual believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you mature, people will look at you and they'll say, I want some of that. Some of your unbelieving friends will look at you and say, I want that comfort that you have. This this terrible thing just happened to you and this is the way you handled it? In verse 16, pay close attention to yourself. Again, Timothy was to be... He was to give an evaluation of himself. He was to make an evaluation. How am I, how am I doing with this? And I didn't say other people were supposed to make the evaluation. <laughs> Happens all the time. But, but Timothy was supposed to make his own evaluation. It's a good thing there weren't emails back then, because Paul would have had to put something about that in here. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Persevere. Perseverance is an essential quality for, for effective leadership. I love Winston Churchill. On the, uh, uh, when the, the, the nation of England was in the dark days, there's somebody that was there, in the dark days of the bombings, remember what he said? Never, 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 never quit. 
never quit. And he got that nation through that time. He had perseverance. That's what they needed. They needed a leader that would persevere. Not not ones whose knees would become shaky when the bombs started to drop. Timothy should not grow slack, but should keep up the good work that he had begun. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, I hate to do this right at the end, but this is probably one of those things when we read it first that you said, I wonder what that's all about. What do you mean ensure salvation for those, uh, both for yourself and for those who hear you? I thought uh, we, were, we held to the doctrine of eternal security. If anybody did, the Apostle Paul did. I guarantee he held to the, to the security of the believers. So what does this mean? This is one of those places where we need to, to take the, the word salvation or the word save, the verb, in its context. Now, briefly, briefly, when, when this word is used in Hebrew Bible, approximately, and this is approximately, 75% of the time, this, this, the idea is a rescue from a position of physical danger into a position of physical safety. That's why David would say, Oh, Lord, save me. And he was already saved. He had already fought Goliath. He had already done a lot of things, but Saul was after him. He was talking about a physical rescue. Rescue from a place of physical danger to a place of physical safety. If a lion is after you, you may be running along the road yelling out, Lord, save me. You're not talking about forgiveness of sins right there. Well, I hope you're not. I hope you've already got that part out down. You're talking about, don't let this lion take a bite out of my leg. Now, in the New Testament, the percentages are slightly different, but it, but it really kind of flip-flops. In the New Testament, the majority of the time that the word salvation or saved is used, it's used the way you're thinking of right now. It's a rescue from a place of of spiritual death into a place of spiritual life. A place of rescue from condemnation into what we would call eternal salvation. But that's not the only way that it's used. For example, in James, I believe the way that James is using the word safe, most of the time that he uses it, is a rescue from a place of immaturity into a place of Christian maturity. And I believe that's what Paul is doing here when he uses the word salvation. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those uh, who hear you or those that you minister to. He, the, the salvation he's talking about there is a deliverance from a, a position of spiritual immaturity, perhaps a position of not knowing how to conduct oneself in the household of God into a position of not only knowing it, but doing it. Not only knowing it, but doing it. Not only learning it, but living it. Does it matter how you behave in ministry? You bet it does. But does it matter how you behave as one who's being ministered to? You bet it does. Because people watch you all the time. Anybody in here that is a parent can tell you that your kids watch you all the time. And that may not become as evident as it should be until the little darling is three or four and they're sitting at the kitchen table and they start spouting off a word that you didn't know where they heard that from. And you look over at their mama and say, what have you been saying around my child? You see, because surely, I'm sure they're the ones that probably did it, right? Yeah. You know, they're, they're watching everything. We can't hardly fuss at them. Can we? What are you doing? Well, Daddy, that's, that's what Mama says all the time. You know? <laughs> it's difficult to spank their little bottoms when we do that because we're the example. You know, and, and then we cheat on our taxes and wonder why they're getting a note from school saying they're cheating on their test. People watch you all the time. Learn it. I'm here to teach you. I'm here to prescribe and teach. Learn it, but also live it. Learn it, 
and live it.